Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, like horseradish, beauty and prayers. <laughs> Brilliant. I think we should do prayers, Sam. Uh, there was a yeah. recent discovery this week made of somebody who'd been squirrelling around in the archives and had come across Anne Boleyn's prayer book, and there were some really faint indentations of it that allow us to completely um, reinterpret it. However, we could also do praise days, ways, strays, maze and plays. However, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, not monstrously deviating, but explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of anxiety is all about phobias Anxious masculinity and 17th century patriarchy. It's about separation anxiety, Freud and the London Foundling Hospital. It's also all about Elizabeth I and her famous Tide Letter to Mary I, replete with manuscript hatchings. It's about the Cold War and anxiety about the economy. And it's also about werewolves and sharks. Did you know that? <laughs> I did. You did, yes, because we recorded it just last week. Or that the history of ink is in fact all about elections and fraud. It's about ancient China, the personality of American presidents, spies and the Cold War. And it's also about Renaissance letters, as is everything. Yeah, absolutely. What's horseradish all about? I've no idea. I just plucked <laughs> no, it from the air. It's such a good one. I'm <laughs> really excited I, about I that. I think it could be about intolerance. Horseradish mm, could be, be about intolerance. Yeah. It could be about uh, Sunday lunches. It could be about memories of my childhood. And that is merely to riff on the mere mention of horseradish. Oh, I tell you what it could be about. It could be about, um, oh, I've done something about horseradish. In I, China, no, in India. In India, about people using genetically modified something or other to recreate flavours. Um, oh, I'll have to think about that. Anyway, we might come to do horseradish. But let me first, of course, introduce my fellow presenter. You may well be wondering who he is. Let me just say that if history had been poisoned, this man would be the vitamin K protamine, the naloxone, the deferoxamine, the flumazenil, the ethanol, formebizepol, amyl nitrate, sodium nitrate and sodium theosulfate. All of which are, of course, antidotes. Yes, you are right. He would be the antidote to poisoned history. He would draw the pus of misinformation, leaving the wound of the past clean and trustworthy. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And great minds think alike because uh, you're an antidote as well. Um, okay. The man not sitting opposite me because we are still social distancing. Well, let's just say if he were a poison-related historian, he'd only 
be the king of all antidotes of the poisoning of the past, the historical emetic purging the bile of poisonous <laughs> untruths from the stomach of history, the purifier of slanderous, poisonous lies and... <laughs> And archival flatulence, so pure and untrue and untainted, is his thirst for historical veracity. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. I'm not sure whether we should just leave that in or whether we should record again, Sam. No, very, very good. I think we should, that might just be the end of the episode. I think yes, that's, that's it. The, Guys, the purifier of slanderous lies and archival flatulence, so yeah. pure and true and untainted. <laughs> Is his thirst for historical veracity? It's me. It's you. It's me. Hello, everyone. We're doing poisoning. Um, this was a Daybell idea, definitely. It was a Daybell idea. Now, it's because I've been reading diaries and also writing about gloves. And I came across the following extract reference in Thomas Turner's diary. Thomas Turner lived between 1754 and 1765, or at least that was when his diary was written. He lived between those years, but also much longer than that. But he wrote the diary from these years. And he records on the 14th of July, Mr. Porter came to me and told me he thought it was the parish's duty to examine the death of this poor creature who died yesterday and have her opened, for there was, according to all circumstances, room to suspect she or some other person had administered something to deprive herself or child of life. Now, this creature was very well all the day, a Monday, and baked, and after she had taken the bread out of the oven, she took a walk and returned about eight o'clock. And about ten o'clock, or between nine and ten, she was taken with a violent vomiting and purging, and continued so all night until Tuesday, five o'clock, at which time she expired. So there we are. There's a sort of little starter for starter for ten, and I'm going to talk about bread poisoning later hmm. on. Do you mean poisoning of bread or poisoning with bread? <gasps> poisoning with bread. Ah, that's interesting. Um, and it's quite surprising, of course, isn't it? Because you might think that bread is harmless. But one of the, the key things that I've discovered is the idea that um, this is actually an idea from a chap called Paracelsus, who was writing in um, the, the uh, early 16th century, that poison is actually all to do with the dose uh, rather than necessarily the toxic toxicology, the toxicness of, of, of the um, toxicity, toxicity of the item involved. So basically anything can be a poison if you, even oxygen or water, whatever it might be, if you take too much of it. So I don't know whether you're going to be going that way with bread or whether there's going to be poison inserted into it. Oh no, it's poison inserted in it. I imagine you could poison yourself if you ate enough horseradish, Sam, as well. Yeah, I should think you could. But um, yeah, anyway, so something I came across, which I which I, I didn't actually end up researching and going down, but you um, you could definitely do a history of... of um, the poisoning with too much of something which is otherwise not poisonous. I bet there are some famous deaths along those lines. I bet not there that are. I have anything. I bet yeah. a surfeit of figs, that yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> it's, it's, what, it's what the word surfeit was invented for, definitely. Um, I was I, I think about all sorts of things, really. Um, accidental poisoning uh, was something that I'd come across. Um, industrial safety. Uh, I thought about the the match girls of the nineteenth century, um, mm. 
was it phosphorus or sulfur? Um, so they're, they're making matches out of out of pine and having to dip them in to make the 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 the, the flamey bit, and that made their jaws go horrible. And it was, um, uh, you know, one of the, the more famous nineteenth-century examples. But of course, there's a, there's a fascinating history of asbestos as well, and um, a kind of a broader but really interesting environmental one, which I came across, which is to do with weed killer. And this is particularly people spraying sodium arsenite on soil to um, keep the weeds down. And it was discovered in the kind of, you know, early 19th century. And there are two key examples that it was used for that it, it uh, and that had a massive effect on humanity and also the environment one is for uh, uh keeping weeds down weed killer essentially weed poison in um uh the caribbean colonies so the sugar plantations and the other one which i loved is it was used for the railways and so there's been a study in australia which i've come across where the remains of on old railway lines are basically the, the the earth of Australia is poisoned with this stuff in long straight lines where railway lines used to run. So you can kind of map the industrial past that was fundamentally changed by the transport revolution through how they it, it, it damaged long term the environment in which it was situated. I thought that was fascinating. I'd like to find out more about that. Mm, excellent. A weed, weed killer has been a topic in Daybell Pastures, uh, the road in which I live. The WhatsApp group was absolutely buzzing the other night because the council were threatening to come round and and weed killer all around the public area in the road to get rid of all the weeds. And people were up in arms about this and saying, we need to petition, we don't want to do it. And the council replied that um, it's fine, we won't we won't come and weed killer, but you have to pull out all the weeds yourselves. <laughs> Which I didn't think was really, you know, I didn't think was really, really on uh, until somebody uh, volunteered their two young boys to come out and weed everything. But I was going, I was, I was thinking about poison from the perspective of gloves. Uh, I don't know whether any of you know, uh, but I'm slightly interested in the history of gloves. Um, but gloves and poison are uh, fascinating. Um, there was a draft um, note made in 1563, uh, just after Elizabeth had come to the throne and there was sort of various sort of insecurity with the realm. This is Elizabeth I. And it's in the hand of William Cecil, who was one of her chief ministers at the time. And it, it regards apparel and diet. And it warned her not to accept apparel or sleeves or gloves from any stranger, lest they be corrected by some fume. In other words, the perfume was poisoned. And there are all sorts of documents going around at the time concerned with people coming and poisoning the monarch with gloves. Um, there's a resident in the English diplomat, uh, Sir Henry Cobham, uh, resident in Paris, warned Sir Francis Walsingham um, of an Italian named Paolo Recente, who it was reported was touring countries and princes' courts, having furnished himself with sundry sorts of poisons, making profession to set perfumed jerkins and gloves. And the English Catholic conspirator Charles Arundel aroused suspicion in 1584 for providing gloves and sweet favours at a new perfumer's shop, fearing some poison towards Her Majesty. So it's it's also about poisonous gloves. And this yeah. is not this is not 
this is not about poison that sort of uh, that acts through seeping through the skin. So it's not something you touch. It's the fumes that you breathe in that poisons you. Hmm. I like that a lot. Be careful with gloves, Sam. Especially smelly ones. Especially smelly ones, yes. I've got a poem for you. Hmm. Uh, A.E. Houseman's Terence, This Is Stupid Stuff from a Shropshire Lad in 1896. There was a king reigned in the east. There, when kings will sit to feast, they get their fill before they think with poisoned meat and poisoned drink. He gathered all that springs to birth from the many venomed earth. First a little, thence to more, he sampled all her killing store. And easy, smiling, seasoned sound sate the king when healths went round. They put arsenic in his meat and stared aghast to watch him eat. They poured strychnine in his cup, they shook to see him drink it up. They shook, they stared as whites their shirt. Them it was their poison hurt. I tell the tale that I heard told, Mithridates, he died old. I love that. Um, Lovely. Yeah, really great poem. And it stopped and it made me think about all sorts of things, actually. But primarily, this first line, there was a king reigned in the east. I've done quite a lot of work in and around Venice. Um, It's where I set off on my Silk Road tour um, all those many years ago. And I still do a little um, cycling trip every now and again with Bike Odyssey. We cycle from Venice to Dubrovnik, which is uh, great fun. You should all check out Bike Odyssey online. Um, But Venice is fascinating because of the enormous amount of poisoning that went on in Venice. It was basically state sanctioned poisoning. And there's some wonderful uh, written evidence uh, about this. And you can look into it into an enormous detail. Um, and what really matters here is the Venetian Council of Ten. These are the guys who who, who kind of took control of Venice and protected Venice from um, all of its enemies, both real and, as was always the case in Venice, perceived. Um, and Venice is certainly a... They use it for a lot of European threats, but but primarily for Ottoman threats. And the, the other reason I, I began this um uh this this poem is is the, the, the variety of different poisons that they talk about. And it makes you actually stop and think about how you would actually go around poisoning someone of an extremely high rank. And powdered diamond is um surprisingly one of the answers there are very few actual kind of documentary sources describing what was going on but there's certainly a long-standing tradition about the lethal effects of consuming powdered diamond um there's uh, in de pyrotechnia on of metallurgy of 1540 um which is possibly written by someone called pandolfo petrucci what a brilliant name it says, physicians say because of its effects that it has the nature of cold and dry earth itself. Many have believed and do believe that if it is taken as food, it is a deadly poison. But they are in error in this. Although it is very true that it prepares for and brings about death if it is taken, not because it is a poison, but because of its contusion of the stomach. So you also have this powdered diamond documented as a substance used by both private parties and also official Venetian um, uh, representatives, officials, essentially, as a method of poisoning. 
Um, and we've actually got uh, written evidence here from the late 17th century, knowing, noticing that powdered diamond is recorded as a poison in cases of state assassinations by Venice in 1683, 1685 and 1691. Um, it's quite interesting, this whole concept of powdered diamond as a poison, because it's widely considered to possess an antidotal properties as well as, as, as toxic properties. Um, there's a quote here from The Mirror of Precious Stones of 1502. What a wonderful book title by Camillus Leonardus. Actually, it's a, the, the Italian uh, is Speculum Lapidum. Latin, I should probably say. Um, Diamond withstands poison. Though soever so deadly is a defence against the arts of sorcery, disperses vain fears, enables the quelling of quarrels and contentions, is a help to lunatics, and such as are possessed of the devil. Being bound to the left arm, it gives victory over enemies, it tames wild beasts, it helps those who are troubled with phantasms and the nightmare, and makes him that wears it bold and daring in his transactions. Now, one of the fascinating things about this is this kind of it, it opens up this question of what is actually a poison? Because they don't know. They're, you're talking you know, about the, the uh, early 16th century here and you've got to bear in mind that they didn't have a complex and sophisticated understanding of medical science. So their understanding of actually what poisoned people and what was an antidote is very rudimentary. So it's quite difficult for historians to recreate. Um, essentially, their diagnostic abilities are the problem is, is it's extremely limited. So it, not only do they find it difficult working out what is causing a problem, but if someone has died from something, they can't find out necessarily what it was that killed them. So you end up with a lot of deaths which are erroneously attributed to poisoning. Um, and you also have various items which are considered toxic, one of which is boiled eggs, <laughs> which I really, really liked. If you boil an egg for an excessively long time, uh, the Venetians believed that it was very poisonous. I don't know if it's true. I doubt it. Um, but the point is, is you've got a pretty rudimentary understanding of what is poisoned, poison, what, what, sorry, what can actually work as poison. Uh, but at the same time, you've got this enormously powerful maritime state who embraces poisoning as the most effective and acceptable uh, form of state assassination. So there are no daggers in daggers in the heart at night. There's no there's no uh, shootings and drownings and kidnappings. You're basically, if you're at war with Venice, you're going to get poisoned by eggs. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, Sam. Brilliant. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm going to take us on a journey to bread now. But before I do that, I just want to pick up on a couple of things that you said there. I can raise your eggs with uh, with milk and raw chicken. Um, I was watching a brilliant um, 
show called Snowfall on BBC iPlayer. If you haven't seen it, it's amazing. It's a cross between narcos and boys in the hood. Anyway, there's this one scene where the mother of the main character is uh, evicting um, some people from a, from a house and the person who she's evicting goes absolutely ballistic and you know, starts shouting, screaming, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, they, they get out and then the mother goes back in and asks her son to put his hand up into the heating vent uh, only to, for him to find in there uh, a, a, a glass jar full of milk and raw chicken that would basically just, you know, gradually heat up over time and become so toxic and rancid that it would basically poison the air. The idea also that you talked about of how do you poison um, important people so how do you poison the monarch, for example? You know, that the gloves fit in there. But there's also a brilliant uh, example uh, from the Roman period. And this is the connected to the Egyptian ruler Cleopatra, who is renowned for her relationships with, with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Anyway, Mark Antony is quite suspicious um, before the Battle of Actium of being poisoned and so he refuses all food and drink supplied by Cleopatra and the way she gets round this is not grinding up um, diamonds um, but actually dipping her ceremonial garland of flowers in poison and then causing the flowers to fall into the wine that was intended for the Romans and this was something that we wrote about in our book the unexpected history of the romans um there was a chapter on poison which is all about roman women um and roman women po poisoning people um which absolutely fascinating uh doing the research for that but what i want to talk to talk about now is about a, a sort of a case of literal poisoning which is bread in the 18th century now if you think about bread it's a staple food throughout this period uh in france the procedure is uniform it's standardized but in britain there are different kinds of bread there's the kind of bran rich bread which is associated with the poor and then there is the sort of nice refined white bread uh, that is seen as something you know a luxury item that people want now because demand is so high for that the way that bakers get around it is by adding a chemical called alum to the bread. Now, alum is it comes in various forms. It's used for all sorts of things. It's an astringent. It's an antiseptic. Uh, it's used to reduce bleeding. Um, in in America at the moment, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approves it as a food additive, but in large doses, it is toxic. And there's real concern in the 18th century with this. Hogarth in 1763 writes, they eat no bread of wheat and rye, but as white as any curd. And the only way that, that bakers can produce this is by adulterating the bread and basically adding poison to it. Uh, and they're accused of adding alum lime, chalk, even powdered bones to keep it white. And this leads to something known as the Great Bread Scandal and is an example of poisoning. So much so that Parliament banned alum and all other bread additives 
in bread. Um, but of course, some people go on and still produce bread, you know, putting all of this rubbish in. What it does is it leads to a literary debate between a, a range of authors and a range of tracts. Um, the first, which was anonymously published in 1757, was entitled Poison Detected or Frightful Truths and Alarming to the British Metropolis in a Treatise on Bread and the Abuses Practiced in Making that Food by my friend, a physician. And so this basically trots through all the issues to do with poisoning bread. It also petitions William Pitt to intervene and, uh, you know, and, and, and decide on the event. Now, what I want to do is I want to read you some of this because it's brilliant. Tea, detrimental alone, is frequently coloured with copperas. Wine is purified with dregs of no as noxious of as noxious properties or roughened with pernicious aspirants. Veal is whitened with chalk and puffed up with perhaps the unwholesome breath of the distempered butcher. The brazier may poison us with the lethiferous fusion of arsenical metals in tin with which he lines our culinary vessels. Our beer, the common beverage of the populace, is perniciated with the baleful properties of vitriol or unwholesome intoxicants. But above all, our bread, the universal basis of the food of all ranks and ages of people, is mixed with the most noxious and morbiferous matters. Of these, in their effects, we propose to give a full exposure. We may expect, indeed, to incur the considerate enmity of the abusers, in other words, the bakers, which will soon collect itself and perhaps break forth. Blah, 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 blah. It goes on. The abusers of bakers have by wise men been thought of sufficient importance and evil influence, not only on the property, but on the health of the people, to draw upon them penalties more or less severe from the jurisdiction of all civilised governments and the malpractices of these men have, from almost unchronicled ages, irritated the public obloquy of vulgar derision. Good bread, that most substantial and principal part of human food, ought to be composed of flour well kneaded with the lightest water, seasoned with a little salt, fermented with fine yeast or leaven, and sufficiently baked with a proper fire. But instead of this wholesome bread, the craft of the iniquitous bakers has found out a more advantageous way method of making this food by the mischievous admixture of many pernicious ingredients to increase its weight and deceive the buyer by its fraudulent fineness. Lime, chalk, alum, and mixed up with flour, yeast, salt, and leaven in certain proportion are constituent parts of the most common food to which in the city of London the deluded inhabitants give the name of bread." Alum as a medicine is one of remarkable contradiction, and every physician knows how hazardous such drugs are, promiscuously and preposterously taken. It is a very powerful astringent and styptic, occasioning heat and constitiveness. The frequent use of it closes up the mouths of the small alimentary ducts, and by its corrosive 
concretions, seals up the lacteals, indurates every mass it is mixed with upon the stomach, makes it hard of digestion, and consolidates the faeces in the intestine so as to bind up the passages which should be open. It therefore prevents the nourishment which we expect from bread and induces disorders which we should not suspect from a food reputed not only harmless but wholesome. Nay, experience convinces me that any animal will live longer in health and vigour upon two ounces of good and wholesome bread than upon one pound of this adulterated compound, a consideration of which may be useful if attended to in the times of scarcity. And so he goes on, all these sort of, you know, these terrible things that it does to you. Um, as these acidities mix with the bile in the duodenum, they must necessarily alter its nature and render it inactive. And as the bile has a considerable share in assimilating the ailment and converting it into good child, this assimilation must be prevented in proportion of the bile. The same holds good in regard to the pancreatic juice and the saliva, both of which in the natural state contribute to the digestion of the aliment and the conversion of it into balsamic chyle, capable of entering the lacteal vessels and mixing with the blood without communicating to it any acrimony, either alkaline or acid. But when the action of the above-mentioned juices is impaired by an acid in the prima vae, an acid chyle is formed, and the very excrement discharged from the intestines betrays an acid in the smell. And so he goes on. So... This is, this is why not to poison bread, Sam. <laughs> I love it. I, the word indurates is outstanding. <laughs> it's quite actually quite difficult to read. Eighteenth um, century, eighteenth century uh, prose. Um, yes, what well, to say about it? I did think it was beautifully read, though. Well, bless you. Yeah. Um, have you got any more to add on poison? Oh, Sam, I've got a bucket load of, on poison. <laughs> Female poisoners. Do you have any more on poison? I've got a little bit. I've got a little bit. Shall I just... I'll give you a little bit of my extra stuff. OK, and then I'll end with some Old Bailey cases, including uh, Miss Molly Blandy. Oh, that sounds fun. Um, I came across something which was really, really interesting, which I think uh, we could bear a bit more work. Ooh. Um, it's also with the racist interpretations of poisoning. Or what, what poisoning is in some countries, whereas it's not in other countries. So it's like it's, it's the cultural differences seen through the lens of 18th century slavery and economics about what is or what is not poisoning. There's a quote here from July, June 2019 from Jamaica's Minister of Justice, Delroy Chuck. He suggests that the government might repeal the 1898 OBEA, spelled O-B-E-A-H, OBEA Act, the act which makes it illegal to be a person practising OBEA which it defines as any person who, to effect any fraudulent or unlawful purpose or for gain or for the purpose of frightening any person, uses or pretends to use any occult means or pretends to possess any supernatural power or knowledge. Um, it's a fascinating thing, this. And it's all to do with um, slavery, you won't be surprised at. And uh, the, the cultures of the Africans who have come to the American colonies and the Caribbean colonies. They've come from societies in which the deliberately hostile use of spiritual power played a significant role. And um, 
what's going on here is that they they understand and believe that specialist knowledge, however that might be acquired, can allowed people to use spiritual means to either protect some people or to attack others. And protection against spiritual attack was a necessary aspect of everyday life. Um, you've got physical substances which could have powerful effects and it often depended on a ritual context with, with which those physical substances are particularly uh, used. Now, this all comes to light during a couple of slave rebellions. And what happens is that the slave owners discover that the slaves are actively using what the Europeans identify as witchcraft. OK, um, and that's how they understand it and they see it. The problem is, is that the... The, the the history of witchcraft, which, um, you know, kind of reaches its peak in the 17th century, so over 100 years before, has gone through a dramatic change. And it's actually declared illegal in the 18th century in Britain to accuse anyone of witchcraft. So the British are put in this really fascinating position where they are convinced that the slaves who are rising up against them are using witchcraft to help them rise up, to unite them against the white slave owners. But at the same time, it's illegal for them to accuse them of using witchcraft. And the way they get around it is to accuse the uh, slaves of poisoning. So there's all sorts of fascinating examples of, in, in law as well um, as uh, you know, anecdotal accounts of um, slaves rising up against slave owners, but using using poison to do so. I've got a couple of um, uh, fantastic little examples here. It's a really interesting example from Bermuda, a relatively late one. Um, and it illustrates the ongoing link between witchcraft, magic and poison in the minds of officials. So you've got an enslaved man named Polybus and he's prosecuted for poisoning, specifically for poisoning. And he's accused of concealing in the ground a certain poisonous match matter or mixture of sundry ingredients wrapped up in some rags as also a certain poisonous liquor in a certain glass file. Uh, a witness states that the ingredients include a pair of pairings of nails and hair that smelt of rum. And both Polybus and the prosecutors clearly think that the poison concealed in the ground would work through a spiritual rather than a, um, a pharmacological means. Um, and another really interesting example of uh, this is a lot earlier. Slave trader John Newton reports an incident on board a slave ship, the Duke of Argyle, in which some men. So these are these are the um, slaves again rising up and they're doing so through the means of poison. The men slaves had found means to poison the ship's water. They had conveyed some of their country fetishes or talismans into a water cask with the intent of killing those who drank from it. So there you are, a couple of examples, but um, a fascinating um conundrum between identifying what is witchcraft and how to do a deal with it in legal terms but they did it by identifying it as poison yikes <laughs> poisonous <laughs> witches sam terrible mm, right I, I want to end very briefly by talking about women and poison because i think if you're thinking about how it, the gendered question of how you murder people um, I imagine what you'd find is that more men use weapons uh, and their bare hands to murder people. So they use physical violence. And f I think poison 
uh, could be construed as a sort of as a female uh, weapon or a method that would be more used by women um, to rid themselves of, of men. And I could show you this through a few examples from uh, one from the Welcome Library uh, digital collection, which if you haven't checked it out, you should all uh, go and have a look. That's where I found the uh, book that I read from uh, earlier on, The Poison Detected. It's all been digitised and you can go in and read it. And I've got here a beautiful etching of a woman in a sort of fine um, 18th century dress. You know, one of those ones that sort of goes out at the hips and, and, and down, the sort of big elongated ones, about a sort of metre wide. And it's a, an etching of a woman called Miss Molly Blandy, uh, who was accused of... Uh, murdering her father uh, and she was hanged for this uh, in 1752 found guilty of poisoning him with arsenic and the text on the uh, on the engraving the etching reads miss molly blandy who with her own and her sweetheart's contrivance did barbarously and inhumanely poison her own father for his estate taken from life in oxford castle with horror, heaven and earth behold, the parricide in murder bold, warned by her fate ye children be, and dread her sad catastrophe. So this idea of women involved in all kinds of poisoning can be found also in records of the Old Bailey Online. This is another freely available, fully searchable um, site. If you just type into Google or whatever uh, research engine manga that you have, uh, the Old Bailey Online, you can search by any particular term. So I just put in a search term uh, poison and came up with all sorts of stuff, including uh, this one about Mary Owen, uh, who was accused of murdering her husband, Henry, uh, by basically making a cake and adding arsenic to it. Um, in the end, she's found not guilty, partly because uh, she and her companion, uh, Elizabeth, uh, also eat the cake uh, and all three of them die from it. Uh, so actually, there's nobody there left to um, to actually prosecute. But also what's interesting is that the public house where it was produced doesn't really come into it. It's mentioned very briefly because I think there's also... A thing at the time in the 18th century about yeah, about commonly poisonous items being adulterated food so you know so what what they didn't want to do was worry uh, the great uh, 18th century public too much about this um another example of adulterated food was jane sibson uh who was accused of of murdering her husband george now uh, she doesn't bake a cake this time she mixes white mercury into uh, his his tea into his bread and butter uh, which she gives him over a period of time um and she spreads it on for him and he becomes slightly suspicious because he, he because at one time he throws his bread into the fire and it just it burns as if it was full of gunpowder so he takes it off for somebody to to check but of course as sam said uh the the art of toxicology is still pretty primitive uh, at this time so it, it's completely inconclusive and the wife is found not guilty now i think the thing the important thing to think of here is the difficulty 
of telling whether something is intentional poisoning, in, the, in other words, whether you have put poison in somebody's food or whether it is simply food poisoning itself. And the science isn't, at this point, sophisticated enough to be able to tell. So there we are. Female poisoners, or are they? <laughs> are they, I think, is the answer. Yes. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Thank you all so much for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed that episode on poison. We will come back with some stuff on uh, whatever we're doing next. I have no idea. Maybe, maybe horseradish. Maybe not. Maybe um, not. Uh, do please follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast, my latest project. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast on Twitter uh, at Unexpected Pod. You can also find us on Instagram and we are on Facebook. And you should also, if you have a moment, check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. We are striving so hard to keep this going uh, at the moment. And we have a Patreon page. And if you enjoy this podcast which you download for free uh, we've been doing forever it seems uh, if you can spare a penny or two um, we'd be most grateful absolutely we would and we'd make sure we'd spend it on good things to keep the podcast going and to get this uh, crazy way of thinking about the past to as many ears as possible that's it for now guys thank you so much again for listening bye bye take care guys bye Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.